We'll hear argument first this morning in number 00952 of the Wisconsin Department of Health and Human Services versus Irene Bloomer. Uh, Ms. Flanagan. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. In 1988, Congress enacted the Spousal Impoverishment Protections of the Federal Medicaid Act, 42 U.S. Code, Section 1396, R5, to accomplish two competing purposes. First, Congress sought to protect spouses living at home from impoverishment when the other spouse is institutionalized and requires long-term nursing home care. Secondly, Congress sought to ensure that married couples seeking Medicaid bear a fair share of the cost of such care. This case concerns whether states have the discretion to achieve those competing goals by taking into account, at the time Medicaid eligibility is determined, available income which the nursing home spouse is permitted to use after eligibility to support the at-home spouse. When the nursing home spouse applies for Medicaid, Section 1396 R5 permits the community spouse to retain certain income and resources to to meet his own monthly maintenance needs. The statute permits an increase in the standard resource allowance, however, if the at-home spouse can show at a fair hearing that the allowance will be inadequate to provide him with income at the state-protected level once the nursing home spouse qualifies for Medicaid. When making this determination, Wisconsin, like more than 30 other states, first considers whether income available to the at-home spouse from the nursing home spouse will be sufficient to ensure the protected level of income once Medicaid eligibility occurs. This method of determining whether to increase or to substitute the standard resource allowance is called the income first rule. And what do the other states do? The remaining states use a methodology called resource first, in which they look first to the additional resources above the standard resource allowance. Um, These cases only arise where the couple has resources above the standard allowance. In this case — It would be very helpful to me if right at this point you pointed the statutory — pointed out the statutory provision that authorizes the state to transfer income at this stage? The, the statutory provision, I think, specifically is found in 42 U.S. Code 1396A, sub A, sub 17, which deals with state standards for eligibility and, and the Secretary's authority to set standards for de- do you have a, handy, availability. Uh, have a handy reference in the brief somewhere to the, where we can see that? It's in uh, the, Etern- uh, the Solicitor General's appendix at um, — the first thing in their appendix is the codified statute 1396 uh, R5, the one we're discussing primarily. And — no, I'm sorry, 1396A is in the first thing in the Solicitor General's appendix. Page 1A. Yes, and A17 on 8A. It looks like Yes, Your Honor, it is. I'm sorry. I didn't. It is correct. And then where in number 17 is the language that you're answering Justice Stevens with? Okay. A A seventeen provides that the secretary shall include reasonable standards, um, and then you skip the long parenthetical for determining eligibility for and the extent of medical assistance under the state plan. And then under B, provide for taking into account only such income and resources as are, as determined in accordance with standards prescribed by the Secretary, available to the applicant or recipient, et cetera. 
And let, let me ask you a question on this point, if I may. There is a section 5B1, R 5B1 of Section 1396 that says that pre-eligibility, none of the income of the community spouse shall be deemed available to the institutionalized spouse. Right? That's right. And you're talking now about post-eligibility? We're talking about a determination that's made at the point of eligibility, but which concerns income available post-eligibility. Well, it says pre-eligibility, none of the income of the community spouse shall be deemed available to the institutionalized spouse. And that provision wouldn't make sense if income of the community spouse itself included income of the institutionalized spouse. Well, I think, Your Honor, the — Would it? That wouldn't make any sense. I think you have to take into account that you're talking about income being calculated at different points in the temporal (coughs) spectrum for different purposes. Uh, Well, you seem to be — arguing that the phrase community spouse's income in C in E2C includes income from the institutionalized spouse. I and think that it can't under that section I read, I think. I, I, I don't understand. No, that particular that. section, B1, uh-huh. refers only to prohibiting income of the community spouse from being deemed available right, to but, the Right, but Justice spouse. O'Connor's point is undoubtedly correct that income of the community spouse there means income of the community spouse alone, not any attri- attributed income from the institutionalized spouse, right? Uh, I- isn't that right? It, it has to mean only the income of the community spouse. Well, I think you have In to that section. At- What's available at that point? I understand. Do you do you have any other section in the Act in which the phrase "income of the community spouse" means not just the income of the community spouse alone, but also income that has been attributed from the institutionalized spouse? Under the definition of community spouse. Income maintenance allowance, I believe, that which is under subsection D. Uh, two B. D two what? D two B refers. Can you tell us where in the, in the uh, SG's appendix that is? It's on 59A of your search petition. 18A of the 59A. At any rate, that, that particular section refers to monthly income otherwise available to the community spouse. And uh, the, yeah. our position is that this evidences a recognition of the, of the fact, as Medicaid has long recognized, that spouses are required to s- support one another and that this is a, a background rule. Ms. Flanagan, it might help if I think one of the main uh, features of this legislation was that income from the community spouse was never to be attributed to the institutionalized spouse, but vice versa. There, there is no such prohibition. That's right. You're and right. That's what, none of this makes sense unless you appreciate that they, that was an absolute prohibition. Now, tell us where that is in this statute that says income from the community spouse is not to be attributed to the institution. It's in subsection B1, 1396R5B1, um, and that was referred to. That was the section I read to you. Right. In my question. Yes. Could, could I have an answer to my question? Uh, the, the section you just referred me to is still not another section other than the one at issue here in which the simple phrase income of the community spouse is used in a sense that means the, the community spouse's own income plus any income attributed to the community spouse 
from the institutionalized spouse. You say that that's the way it's used in the provision at issue here. My question is, where else in the entire statute is it used in that fashion? I don't believe it's used anywhere else. That's why the difficulty in this case arose, is to try to figure out what that means. Well, no, I think that rather <laughs> solves the difficulty, frankly. I, just I would normally think that, in, that income of the, of the community spouse means income of the community spouse. And you say it means no, the community spouse's own income plus attributed income. I don't know anywhere else in the statute that it is used in that fashion, just in this one section where you say we should interpret it that way. There are other sections where it, where it clearly means only the, uh, the community spouse's income. With respect, Your Honor, the Medicaid statute has long considered available income as part of the income of the person to which it's referring. And we — where it does that. That's all I'm asking for. If, if it's long done that, just give me another section where income of the community spouse means what you say it means here. The, the phrase is used a lot, I'm sure. That particular phrase is not used frequently in the statute. That's, that's part of the problem. It's only used And isn't it true that the, the, the situation you're talking about were deeming in the other direction, where they deem the community spouse income to be attributable to the institutionalized spouse, not vice versa? Well, Your Honor, Justice Stevens, the the background rule which I referred to, which this Court clearly articulated in the Gray Panthers case, is that spouses are expected to support one another. That's a two-way street. But that was for purpose of determining how much of the community spouse's income should be deemed to belong to the institutionalized spouse. That's right. I, I'm just saying that spousal support obligations are a two-way street, right. and the Court clearly recognized that. In this case, we have the unusual circumstance where Congress sought to provide additional protection to the community spouse, to reverse the prior deeming rule which permitted states to take income from the community spouse and require it to be used for the cost of care. In this case, in the spousal impoverishment provisions and this provision specifically, Congress is trying to protect the community spouse by making available to the, to the at-home spouse income that is specifically contemplated to be made available as but, soon but as eligibility But it is clear, is it occurs. not, that the resource first rule gives greater protection to the community spouse than the income first rule? The, the result is that it permits the, uh, in general, it frequently permits the at-home spouse to retain a greater share of the couple's joint resources than would be the case under the state-defined standard resource allowance. And in that sense, yes, that's definitely correct. Ms. Flanagan, am, am I right in thinking that the, neither the Act we're talking about nor the SSI actually define community spouse's income? No, it doesn't. That's the exact problem in this case. There, there is no definition, and our position is that community spouse's income means in, income possessed by the community spouse, income that the spouse has a right to, and income that is available to the spouse at the particular point when it's being considered. Was the income first rule in Wisconsin uh, adopted by the legislature or by a state agency? Or? It was initially adopted as a matter of policy by the state agency immediately after passage of the statute. Then in 1993, the legislature amended the statute to have an express income first requirement. So then your state court, I take it, under prevailing Wisconsin rules, could not ignore the legislature's determination unless it found that the federal statute was unambiguous. well, that is what they did, yes, Your Honor. They uh, c- interpreted the federal statute as being unambiguous. The, they concluded that the state law conflicted with the plain terms of the federal statute and therefore could not be enforced. Ms. Flanagan, as I understand it, the, there's a provision, and these have been referred to this morning, but there's a provision that forbids uh, attribution uh, from the community spouse to the institutionalized spouse, 
period. No qualifications on that. During institutionalization. That's right, yeah. There's also a provision which recognizes uh, the possibility of transferring income from the institutionalized spouse to the community spouse after eligibility has been determined, but does not require any such transfer. It simply, in effect, says how you do it. Is that It doesn't explicitly uh, require the transfer. There are, however, powerful incentives in the, the statute no. to, to right. basically require them to do it. But it doesn't, that latter provision doesn't make any reference to the period before eligibility. And I guess my question is, why don't we, why don't we uh, infer some kind of a negative inference when, when the provision refers totally to the post-eligibility period? Why don't we find some negative implication that it was not expected in the pre-eligibility period? Well, the fact is that the calculation that the hearing officer is asked to be made here concerns the post-eligibility period. The question is, is the at-home spouse going to have sufficient income in the post-eligibility period, or does the resource allowance need to be jacked up in order to provide that additional income? So in that context, the hearing officer is looking at the same period of time when the, com- the standard resource allowance goes into effect, the same period of time when the transfer provisions go into effect. So, so basically the answer is the fair hearing has got to take place before eligibility is determined, and that's, in effect, the answer to my question. That's right, but the calculation is looking ahead. If there are no... I have one further question. And if you can't give me an answer right away, maybe you can when you come back. It's sort of the flip side of the question I asked earlier. Do, can you give us at least some other portions of the statute where income of the institutionalized spouse is clearly used to mean the institutionalized spouse's own income plus, plus income attributed to the institutionalized spouse from the uh, community spouse? Well, that really doesn't arise because of subsection B-1, which expressly precludes that. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Ms. Flanagan. We'll hear from you, Mr. Lampkin. Mr. Lampkin, you've heard the questions, and it is difficult looking at the text of the statute to figure out what supports the petitioner's view, although, as I understand it, that is also the view of the federal government here, that income first rule is okay. Yes, Your Honor. Now, are there proposed regulations of HHS that would allow either resource-first or income-first rules? Yes, Your Honor. There's currently a pending rulemaking before HHS, and the Secretary in the Notice of Proposed Rulemaking has determined that states should be permitted to decide whether to use the income-first methodology or the resource-first How far along is that process? When is that going to be adopted? The comment period closed on November 6th. There's been a little bit of a delay because there's concern that many comments might have been quarantined in the Brantwood facility. Um, However, we're hoping the Secretary can proceed and complete that process with all due speed. Can I ask what authority the Secretary has to say that the statute is ambiguous so it can mean either one? We don't even let federal agencies do that under Chevron. I mean, we, we didn't say in Chevron that that a federal agency can either say that a bubble means this or say that a bubble means the other, willy-nilly. We said, since it can mean one or the other, we'll go along with whichever one the federal agency says it means. But, but here we have a federal agency that says we have ambiguous language, so, hey, do whatever you like. I mean, it may be ambiguous, but surely it was intended to mean one thing or the other. How can the secretary come off just, just telling the states, eh, it's ambiguous, you know, do it either way, we don't care? Justice Scalia, I think the answer comes in two parts. The first is one doesn't have to think that the statute means two different things at once in order to accept the secretary's view. Community spouse's income can have a meaning, but there may be different methodologies, all of which are reasonable for determining and calculating what is the community spouse's income. In addition, this Court has, and the states have liberty in order to decide, choose among those reasonable methodologies, because under Section 17 on page 8A of our, uh, the appendix to our brief, 
They are to establish reasonable methodologies consistent with the Secretary's regulations. Well, gee, you, you, could, you could say that about every ambiguity. I mean, that there are two different methodologies. You could have said the same thing with, uh, with Chevron. Now, could, could, could the Secretary and Chevron have — there are two different methodologies of, of, of deciding what's a — what is it, point of admission, emission or e, — Point fact, source, yeah, e, yeah point source fact, of emission. In fact, Justice Scalia, this Court has upheld precisely that type of regulation when issued by the Secretary. In a case called Batterton versus Francis, and again in a case called Lucard versus Reed, in which you wrote the opinion for the Court, where when the statute did not clearly preclude one methodology or another, the Secretary, because the Secretary has quasi-legislative authority to set standards in this area, may adopt standards that permit variations from state to state. In Batterton versus Francis, it was under AFDC, and the question is, what was unemployment? Did it include striking workers or did it not? And the Secretary said, states, you may determine that based on your own state law. In Lucard versus Reed, the question was whether or not a tort judgment would be considered income or resources. The Secretary, through guidance, told the states that they had the option of choosing it as income or resources because both are reasonable. This Court in Lucard versus Reed again upheld that decision. So in this particular area where states have the principal responsibility for establishing standards, the Secretary may establish the boundaries, the reasonable boundaries within which those standards may be established. But unless the — and so long as this, the, uh, the standards established by the state are not contradicted by the statute, are not contradicted by the Secretary's regulations, this, and are reasonable, Isn't this a little be different? Upheld. Because in this statute, if I understand it correctly, there is express statutory authorization for the resource-first method, whereas the income-first method is drawn by inference from what you consider ambiguities. No, Your Honor. I believe that neither methodology is, is particularly compelled or expressly authorized by the statute. The statute simply does not speak to the issue of whether when a spouse, a community spouse, is going to have a shortfall in income, you make that up first by paying additional money to the person in the nursing home so that she may support the spouse at home, which is the income-first methodology, whether first you raise the resource allowance so that she may gen- so that the person at home has additional income from resources. I think I should probably go back and answer Justice O'Connor's and Justice Scalia's question about the meaning of community spouse's income in Section B-1, because uh, there has been a suggestion that that necessarily includes only the income paid directly to the community spouse. It is, in our view, a settled legal tradition that the community spouse's income or one spouse's income may include income from another spouse that is deemed to be income of the community spouse in contemplation of law. And so in B1, community spouse's income could include income from the institutionalized spouse that the institutionalized spouse can make available. That's consistent with the presumption of spousal support. And it's consistent with, for example, existing regulations, such as those in uh, — Would you go over that a little more slowly for me? I'm, I How do you read B1 to B1, it says, cover reverse deeming as well as deeming? Right. All it says is that the income of the community spouse shall be — shall not be deemed available to the institutionalized spouse. Correct. The inference to be drawn from that is that there's no prohibition on deeming income of the institutionalized spouse. But even if there's no prohibition, where is your authorization for doing this? That's what I don't find in the statute. Your Honor, it was a, it's a — If you start from a background rule with the name on the check as the background rule for the whole SSI program, how can you change that rule without authorization? That's the mistake, Justice. Pardon me? That's the mistake, Justice Stevens. You don't start with the presumption of the name on the check rule. You start from the presumption that the income of one spouse may be deemed the income of another spouse because the general rule is that spouses may be expected to support Where in the statute does it say that? The statute doesn't, but Congress said it when it enacted the Medicaid Act in the first instance, and that was the established rule under the Secretary's policies at the time that this statute was enacted. If you look at the Secretary's regulations that existed when Congress uh, enacted this, it said the that income of one spouse may be deemed deeming. to another. I'm sorry. That was deeming, not reverse deeming. Um, no, Your Honor. In fact, deeming did occur. Uh, reverse deeming did occur or could occur under the prior policies, particularly in Section 209B states. Now, in most situations, well, first, for post-eligibility determinations, states did set aside a certain amount of money of the institutionalized spouse's income for the support of the community spouse, and they treated that money as unavailable to the spouse in the nursing home so that it could be available to the spouse at home. That is this situation, what you would recall reverse deeming. Second, even at the eligibility stage, particularly in Section 209B states, it would be permissible to deem the income of 
the institutionalized spouse to be income of the community spouse. Now, it might not often come up, but it would come up where, for example, both were applicants, in which case that would be permissible. So the settled background principle that existed at the time Congress acted is that spouses support each other mutually. And Congress eliminated one of those presumptions on a going-forward basis in B-1 and said that, no, the community spouse's income shall not be deemed available to the institutionalized spouse, but left in place the background principle that an institutionalized spouse, if they have the funds, can support the You can leave that background principle in place, and we can all concede that it's in place, without thereby coming to the belief that when you say income of the community spouse, you mean income of the community spouse plus whatever is deemed attributable to the community spouse. I mean, I, I don't contest the principle. But I don't see that, that, that's just not a, not a reasonable way to use, to use language. Uh, I agree it can be deemed, but you should, you should say. It would have been very easy to say income of the, uh, of the community spouse, including any attributed income. Your Honor, it would be the, the Secretary's, or the regulations that existed at this time when they discussed what we count as your income as your applicant for SSI, for example. It said we count as your income your income plus income from other people, so that it treated it as the individual's income. And that is consistent with the background principle that each spouse's income is income to the other spouse. And when states may establish reasonable standards for Sorry, what did it mean, income from other people? Um, they're a, a Money given you by your children on a regular basis and things of that sort. Well, actually attributed income, Justice Scalia, actual income that's passed over, you don't need a deeming rule because that's right, actually right, income. Right, right, you, you don't but mean that. For responsible individuals, there were categories such as spouses, such as parents, such as there was another category I can't remember the name of, but where if somebody had a responsibility for supporting you, their income was deemed to be your income for determining your eligibility. But I that, take it the only thing that you've got expressed in the record anywhere to indicate that that really is what Congress had in mind is the statement in the legislative history that is quoted in the briefs that refers to other income attributed. Is right. That right? That, That's the only thing in black and white. That is the only thing in black and white other than the fact that the settled background principles the Secretary operated under before the enactment would treat the income of one spouse as available to the other. And it was not merely deeming from the community spouse to the institutionalized spouse, but deeming the other direction occurred. Thank you, Mr. Lanskin. Uh, Mr. Hagopian, we'll hear from you. Counsel, would you mind telling us why it matters? Which rule is followed by a state resource for first or income first, not just in an individual case, but overall? Who, who saves what uh, in terms of money if you do one thing or the other? Uh, yes, Justice O'Connor. Uh, under the resource first rule, the uh, applicant, the community spouse of the applicant and the institutionalized spouse, is the person who gets the money. And they get the money in the form of an expanded community spouse resource allowance that then generates income that brings the monthly need, the community spouse's actual income up to or as close to the monthly need amount that's set by the state. Under income first, the income is fictionally imputed from the institutionalized spouse to the community spouse but it doesn't actually go to the community spouse. That would not ever happen until after eligibility had actually been determined. So in the aggregate, the resource first rule allows uh, community spouses who would not adequately be protected by the formula community spouse resource allowance because that does not generate income up to the monthly need amount uh, and because they have no other income or not enough income to bring them up to that level. It allows them to actually have uh, resources that will generate that income and protect them even in, uh, after the institutionalized spouse uh, passes away. Doesn't it also problem? make possible the, um, the um, payments, the, the actual payments start earlier? I mean, the, the reason this, this was of such concern is that the institutionalized spouse would not be eligible monthly for checks, so that the immediate effect 
was to she could pay down more rapidly what was her excess um, resources before she qualified. Isn't that isn't that the primary effect that, that the payments under Medicaid start earlier? Yes, if I understand your question correctly, Justice Ginsburg, uh, the, the income first rule requires that those assets be spent down. Is that, is that the answer to your question? Yeah, the, yeah so that Justice O'Connor asked you what the effect of, and I yes. think the most immediate effect of, is she starts to collect Medicaid sooner and doesn't use oh. spousal resources. Now I understand your question. No, uh, that's not true. Under income first, the institutionalized spouse does not become eligible. Only under resource first does the institutionalized spouse become eligible, and then that allows the payments post-eligibility to actually occur to the uh, community spouse. Maybe I'm not making myself clear. I thought the principal advantage to the couple of using your resource rather than the income first, resource first, is that the institutionalized spouse is pays down quicker and is therefore eligible for Medicaid money sooner. That's what your position achieves. Is yes, that that's so? correct. Yes. But that doesn't that um, assume your case and not the more typical case? The more typical case, um, given statistical projections, is that the husband will be the institutionalized purpose. And so in the typical case, it will not work to the advantage of the couple. Um, well, I, I, I would agree with you, Justice Kennedy, that the typical case is statistically that it is the husband that goes into the nursing home first, and we don't have that case here today. But I, I believe I disagree with you uh, as to the effect that this has. First of all, it, the sex of the spouses doesn't necessarily matter uh, as is indicated by this case, it's possible for uh, a male spouse to be the community spouse and have exactly what happened here happened. Um, I'm sorry, are you finished with that? I didn't want to cut off your answer. I don't think I answered your question, Justice Kennedy. Um, but the, uh, the institutionalized spouse if it is the high are, are, are you asking me whether if the institutionalized spouse has a um, higher income, that, that what happened here won't happen? Is that the question? Or that yes. Look, 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 I, I assume in many cases the husband is the first to be hospitalized, and he is the one with the greater income. That's correct. So, in fact, in many cases, the income first rule will have a worse effect when the husband is the one that goes in first, because his income will be higher. There will be more income that will be attributed to the community spouse in this pre-eligibility determination, and that will prevent her from having income of her own that would raise her uh, to the minimum monthly maintenance needs allowance. If resource first was used in that case, she would be able to retain assets that would generate actual income to her that would uh, meet the uh, monthly need amount. Well, if, if states cannot follow this income first rule, maybe they would just respond by reducing uh, the minimum monthly maintenance needs allowance and adjust it that way. Yes. Or, or adjust downward the resources protectable for the community spouse. Yes. Yes, Justice O'Connor, that could happen. That is where the flexibility in the spousal impoverishment provisions exists for the state. How many states are using income first? We don't uh, exactly know. According, I believe, to the petition, uh, the state estimated that it's in the neighborhood of 30 to 35 states. Of course, I suppose a really hard-nosed state could do both, right? Could use the income first rule plus uh, plus uh, adjust downward the, the other. I mean, the, the two don't go with each other. You either adjust downward or use the income first. I, I have this question. You, you you maintain that the statute is not ambiguous if they have to do it this way. What is your burden if it is ambiguous? If it is ambiguous, do, do you lose? Do you acknowledge that you lose? Oh, absolutely not, Justice Scalia. Do you, do you think the ambiguity has to 
do you think the ambiguity has to be resolved, or can, can the Secretary just, just leave the ambiguity floating out there? Well, that's essentially what they've decided to do in right. the proposed rule, is to leave it floating. Uh, I don't think that's the proper uh, method to well, do it. But by proper, you mean lawful? You, uh, lawful, that's correct. They are not permitted to do that. That's right. I agree, actually, with the way you framed it in your questions to the petitioner, and that is that it just is uh, illogical to assume that Congress, when they enacted this particular protection, which we believe is a fail-safe protection for those few uh, couples who would not adequately be protected by the formula resource allowance, uh, that that to have these two wildly divergent interpretations spring from the exact same language seems totally unreasonable. Well, what did you do with a case like Batterton against Francis, then? Well, Your Honor, uh, I believe that in a case like uh, Batterton v. v. Francis, uh, we have a different set of rules here. First of all, I believe that was an AFTC case. Well, but, it, you know, it's still the general same ballpark. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, we believe that the enactment in the Medicare Catastrophic Coverage Act of the uh, no more restrictive rule under SSI resolved that whole issue for us. And that is that um, with 1396 a sub R, which is found at the uh, appendix to uh, our brief, it's the only page in the appendix, that the, uh, the question is actually resolved by the uh, application of the SSI methodologies. Well, you say the question is resolved. Uh, do you mean by that that the Secretary does not have any discretion to decide that a state is free to follow either A or B? Yes, Your Honor. And how, how does that follow? Well, there's a, a couple of uh, — first of all, the, the authority that the Secretary has relied on to issue its proposed rule and apparently from which its authority to uh, develop the rule at all is 1396AA17 sub B. Now, it's our position initially that the — that 1396AA17 that was actually superseded by operation of 1396R5 sub A number uh, yeah, one. This is very difficult to take in. I believe orally. That. <laughs> <laughs> uh, But go ahead. If you want. <laughs> it's almost as difficult to say it. Uh, <laughs> um, but the, uh, the spousal impoverishment provisions, one of the main things that they did was supersede uh, the authority that the state and the United States have relied upon to issue the rule and to, to engage in this so-called reverse deeming. Uh, so, and at the same time that they superseded that rule, they also enacted 1396 uh, A sub R. Now, this rule, uh, what this rule did, and, and this rule was actually, uh, I want to back up, another provision of the spousal impoverishment enactment was 1396 R5 sub 1 sub uh, C. And this provision uh, retained the SSI methodologies or any pre-existing methodologies that were not specifically overridden by the spousal impoverishment enactments. Now, the, the one thing that was left untouched by the spousal impoverishment provisions was the way that income was determined for eligibility purposes. Now, that brings us to 1396A sub R. And that provision is the provision of the Medicaid Act that mandates that the SSI methodologies apply to income and resource determinations uh, for uh, all the eligibility groups that were, are relevant in these cases. And it did, that statute does allow states and HICFA or CMS or the Secretary to, to issue rules that deviate from those SSI methodologies. But those rules, if they're going to do a rule that deviates from that methodology, the rule has to have the effect of making more people eligible for Medicaid, not fewer people. And this rule, the income first rule, uh, fails that test. What it does is, because under the SSI program, if the SSI methodologies were strictly applied, the income of the two spouses is separated and is never commingled. And so, because under SSI, this would not happen, uh, a rule which allows it to happen in Medicaid is considered to be no more restrictive and not, or, I'm sorry, more restrictive than the SSI methodologies, 
and is not permitted by that statute. May I ask you a question? I know the case is easier if you don't look at the legislative history, so it's probably easier for my colleague than it is for me. <laughs> but <laughs> w- would you — would you explain to me how you interpret the parenthetical phrase that's quoted on page 18 of the, the government's brief in, in the talus, taking into account any other income attributable to the community spouse? I, I find it kind of a puzzling parenthetical. How do you read that? Well, I have two responses to that, Justice Stevens. First, Within the uh, spousal impoverishment enactment, the term attribute or attributable is used in two different fashions. When it's used in, uh, to describe resources, it has the effect of commingling the resources and pooling them. When it's used in conjunction with the term income, it has the effect of separating the income between the two spouses. So it's, it's my initial position that income attributable to the other, other income attributable to the community spouse merely uh, confirms the way it was done under the SSI statutes, and that is consistent with the way it's done where income is talked about at all in the spousal impoverishment provisions. And, and I think there's actually a reason for that to be in there, and that is that it would be possible in some cases for a community spouse to attempt to get an expanded resource allowance by coming into the hearing and saying, I have income, and it's in my name right now. Maybe it typical would be maybe it's from employment. And at this date, when I'm trying to establish eligibility or my institutionalized spouse is trying to establish eligibility, I have that income. But I don't believe you should count that income to me because it's going to end next month when my job ends. So I think that's what they were talking about, that, that trying to foreclose that type of argument at a hearing. And so uh, I believe that the real effect of that parenthetical phrase is to confirm the separate treatment of the income. The reason it isn't in the statute, even, and it's in the legislative history, is because the SSI mandate under 1396 uh, A sub R accomplished that purpose precisely. Every other part of that legislative history essentially becomes uh, 1396 R5 E2C. That phrase is missing. In, in that particular provision, um, to retain an adequate amount of resources, all that all that any other income attributable to the community spouse need mean is income attributable to him from sources other than interest on 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 his uh, on his resources. I mean that that phrase could include his his actual wages, couldn't it? The institutionalized spouse's wages, or the the community spouse's wages? Oh, yes, absolutely. It would consider. I think See, it does. I mean, it, it, yes, I believe that it does. Resource allowance is the resources that provide income, which means you know stocks or whatever, and all that phrase there need mean is something any any other income attributable to him from something other than his stocks, right. such as his wages. Right? Exactly. You, your argument uh, in, in the event that we find ambiguity is, I guess, boils down simply to the fact that for a variety of reasons, it would frustrate the congressional policy behind the act itself if we held uh, uh, against you. And yet, you know, in a way, haven't you provided uh, a, an answer to that, a counter to that argument in, in your answer to a question a few moments ago? You, you said, and I, I think you have to say, that uh, if uh, if the states lose on the particular issue before us here, the states, as a practical matter, can get to the same kind of rough dollar and cents result simply by adjusting uh, the, uh, the, the 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 amount of resources that is deemed to be the the baseline amount uh, for the community spouse to retain. Uh, and the amount of income which is thought to be necessary for the community spouse uh, to, to live decently. So it, it, it almost seems as though it doesn't very much matter necessarily to the enactment of whatever policy Congress had, uh, whether the flexibility comes in income first versus resource first, or whether it comes in setting the, the, the allowances for income and assets. What, what's your answer to that? Well, I think that the answer to that is that uh, the resource-first allowance, uh, resource-first rule, was placed in a provision that was 
what we call the fail-safe provision. This was a provision that was supposed to be applicable to all the states and allow those few couples, and I want to stress that this is not going to affect a lot of people, the few couples who would not be adequately protected by uh, those formula allowances. And so this, because the, the policy of this statute was to uh, defeat spousal impoverishment, that was certainly one of the primary uh, purposes behind it. And uh, in the vast majority of cases, the formula resource allowance was going to adequately serve that interest. So but you're it, saying this is kind of an exceptional case kind of mechanism, regardless of how you set income and resources. Absolutely. And as an, as a, as an exceptional case mechanism, it's only going to work uh, uh, if it works the way you say on a resource-first basis. That's right. And uh, to stress the uh, exceptional case component of it, uh, you have to remember how you get one of these hearings. This is not an easy matter. This is not something that's uh, accomplished by the local agency for uh, every single applicant who walks through the door. You have to have know that you're in excess, have resources in excess of this formula resource allowance. You have to go to your local welfare office. You have to apply for benefits knowing that your application is going to be denied. You get denied, and then you have to request a hearing, go to the hearing, prove up the need with all sorts of mathematical calculations for this. This is not something that uh, people, the faint of heart, are going to be doing on purpose. So it is an exceptional procedure. Have you read the notice of the proposed rulemaking? Yes, I have, Justice Ginsburg. And I suppose your argument is to the effect that that is just not a permissible interpretation of the statute. Yes, that's uh, certainly uh, one of our arguments against it. Uh, we also believe, though, that the uh, statutory authority that the Secretary is using uh, for promulgating it, which is 1396 AA17 sub B, has been superseded in spousal impoverishment, so the rule itself is probably promulgated pursuant to invalid authority. Um, do we owe any deference to the agency here and its interpretation? Well, because our position is that the position they're taking is totally unreasonable, no, you don't owe any deference to the agency. mean that at the end of the day less federal money is spent on Medicaid care? Uh, not necessarily. Uh, in the immediate, the effect of denying an application based on income first would at that moment prevent someone from being eligible for Medicaid but, uh, and, and so therefore would save federal dollars. No question about that. But you have to remember that the resources that the couple is required to spend in order to become eligible there's no requirement that those resources be spent on the nursing home. And so it's possible that those resources could be spent for some other purpose, and then the person could immediately become eligible for Medicaid, uh, you know, within a short time after the initial application was denied. Uh, and the, it, the important thing about that point is that if that happens, if those resources are gone and the income that's generated from them uh, is gone, then when you get to the post-eligibility determination, the less of the institutionalized spouse's income is going to be able to be used to defray the cost to the Medicaid program, because more of it's going to have to be used to increase the uh, uh, allowance to the institution or the community spouse. So in the short run, it may be uh, save the federal government money. In the long run, it does not. Would you comment on, on uh, uh, one of the questions I asked Mr. Lampkin, uh, whether the background rule is the name on the check rule, or as he puts it, the, re the better view is the background rule is one of deeming, and so that we should start from the premise that it's okay to treat one spouse's income as part of the other spouse? Right. <coughs> well, I, I, I beg to differ with Mr. Lampkin's uh, uh, presentation of the background rule. Uh, I don't believe that there is uh, any precedent for the reverse deeming that he's talking about uh, in any of the background uh, rules. The, the deeming that was permitted was strictly from the uh, non-applicant spouse to the applicant spouse, and it was for the purpose of denying that, per that person eligibility. The, the one rule he talked about where there was some reverse deeming was, was also was a post-eligibility rule. Under the old rules pre-MECA, the uh, nursing home spouse could allocate a small amount of money 
to the community spouse, usually just enough to bring that community spouse above the local welfare threshold so that they wouldn't have to support that person on welfare. But that was a post-eligibility deeming. It was not an eligibility deeming. And in the SSI program, which is what we believe where the methodologies occur that dictate uh, how income is to be determined, there is no uh, deeming uh, from the applicant spouse back to the non-applicant spouse. Even under this program, as I understand it, in the post-eligibility determination, the income can be transferred from the institutionalized spouse to the community spouse. Yes. Yeah. I might ask one question. Uh, this, uh, examples help a lot for me in these cases. I couldn't understand them without them, and the amicus briefs were filled with them, which was helpful. But the example I'm carrying around in my head is that we have, say, a, a woman in, in an institution who has about two or $300,000 in assets and maybe a small pension of eight or 10000 And her husband's at home, and he has a pension coming in, maybe of ten to 12000 And so he's lacking about six or seven or eight or nine or $10,000 to bring himself up to the $24,000 level. Now, if you're right, what we'll do is we'll take the 300000 the wife has, and we give it to the husband. It generates about, uh, I don't know, ten, twelve thousand dollars $12,000, and eventually that 300000 goes to the children. And if you're right, she doesn't have to spend it down. And if you're wrong, but, but by the way, if that money goes to the husband, later on, when her pension comes in, and there's about eight or 10000 coming in, that money goes right to the institution to pay for the health care. She doesn't get to keep it. So that's one way. Yes. Now, the other way is that she keeps, she spends down the 300000 If she has to spend down the 300000 maybe that money goes to the institution, maybe it goes to fix the roof. But then when the income comes in, it goes right to the husband. So I don't know. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's sort of what you get. The government seems to think that it's better off financially by making her spend the money down. But I guess that depends on whether the alternative is to pay the 300000 to the doctors or pay it to get the roof fixed. So when I end up thinking that, I haven't a clue. And so therefore, I'd say, well, if I were writing this statute, I guess I'd leave it up to the secretary. And if the secretary wants to leave it up to the states, that's his business. So, so I look at the language, and, and uh, the language there seems uh, not to solve the problem. And, okay, what's the response? <laughs> that was a question? Uh, <laughs> I was putting the thing because yes, I, I want you to see that at the moment I'm thinking, well, I can't figure it out, but I'm working with those examples. And, and uh, since I can't, I say uh, leave it up to the secretary, leave it up to the uh, state, leave it up to somebody else as long as the statute allows that. I, I wanted to expose that to you because I want you to have a chance to say, no, you're wrong, your example is wrong, your reasoning's wrong, everything's wrong. So go ahead. <laughs> I concur with everything you just said, Justice Breyer. The, uh, I think your first example was the wrong one, the one that, oddly enough, is, is bad for me. Um, and that's because uh, I think you're assuming that the, the resources that are going to be protected for the care of the community spouse uh, will be transferred upon death to the uh, children. That's possible. But if the community spouse outlives the nursing home spouse, that resource pool, because for whatever reason there isn't an independent stream of income available to that community spouse, it's going to be that resource uh, fund that creates the income stream for that community spouse. If it's protected and not have to be spent down to, medic to Medicaid eligibility, that community spouse is much more likely to retain it, not spend it on things that he doesn't need, in order to preserve that income stream so that he can take care of himself, hopefully not in a nursing home, but perhaps in some sort of non-institutional setting that he would prefer over that. So that's my response to your question. Although that, you make a big point of that, what happens on, on, if you lose and the institutionalized spouse dies? And that is a problem. I mean, I don't know why the government doesn't, as a matter of policy, you make a pretty strong case. But the, 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 uh, uh, I guess the response will be, well, you know, everybody knows this. Everybody, no matter how well educated or badly educated or they all know when they get that pension choice that if you either pay, take it all for yourself 
or you say, when I die, I want my spouse to get some. And so, so th- th- they've all made that conscious choice, and if they make it uh, to protect the spouse, that's up to them, and they probably will. I mean, that, that, that would be the response, I think, to that argument. It would be the problem with when you, my understanding, I'm not a pension expert by any means, but when you exercise an option that protects the surviving spouse, you so deflate the value of the, patent, of the patent pension that it's economically a poor decision to make. I would have thought that your response would be the statutory language requires the result you're urging. But you don't make that argument, apparently. No, no, we do make that argument, oh, you do. Justice O'Connor. Okay. Yes, the statutory language I guess I just didn't hear that in response <laughs> to the question. Well, it was in the opening that I didn't get a chance to make, so. <laughs> in your response to Justice Breyer, isn't it so, uh, or am I, um, counsel, am I Pardon me. <laughs> wrong in thinking that under ERISA there is a requirement to provide for the surviving spouse. It isn't the option of the insured individual. Well, I'm no expert on ERISA, but I believe that there is a notice requirement and a sign-off requirement in ERISA. But if the community spouse does sign off for her rights, then it doesn't necessarily happen. It's not a mandate. It can be overcome by activity by the uh, surviving spouse. But it's not the um, insured's election in the first place. Of course, if the surviving, if the spouse wants to cooperate and says, I don't want anything. Right. But it isn't the wage earner's choice. No. They, I don't want usually her to be any part of it. That's right. But I think those decisions are made at a time when long-term care is not necessarily in the immediate offing and maybe usually at age 65 or thereabouts, long before nursing home uh, stays may be uh, inevitable. And so the couple is making an informed choice about how best to uh, maximize their income stream. I mean, nobody is ready for nursing home stays. And to plan for that, you know, based at the time that you make your pension election would be counter to, I think, human nature. Mr. Hagopian, uh, I want to come back to the snippet from legislative history that's referred to on page 18 of the government's brief. I guess if you believe that legislative history, then it would have to be done the way the government says it need only may be done. I mean, if if you believe the government's interpretation of that legislative history, it it certainly doesn't say the Secretary has the option. It either says what you think it means or or it requires the Secretary to use the the income-first method, no? I think uh, I frankly agree with you, Justice Scalia. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Hagopian. Ms. Flanagan, you have three minutes left. Know what I mean? Mm. Thank you, Your Honor. I would like to talk about the impact of what the resource first rule is. I think there have been questions on that. The impact of the resource first rule is to devote limited medical assistance funds to couples who have resources substantially above the federal maximum set levels. Um, And that, in turn, necessarily means, since we have limited pots of income, that that deprives states of money needed to serve Why is that? I mean, he just said on that that, that, uh, and I certainly was in the briefs, that that if you say they have to spend down the 300,000, they're not going to give it to the doctors in the institution. They'll fix the roof. They'll pay off the mortgage. They'll figure out one of 50 other things. So the state will actually end up with less money because they won't get that 300000 as a set-off. And moreover, they lose the income coming in later as a set-off. Well, neither of us have any statistics on that. I, I'm sure that people do pay off their long-term financial obligations. But they also have to pay for the nursing home. And that bill doesn't go away every month. So if they're not eligible, they're going to have to be providing for that in some way. So while the statute doesn't force them to devote their resources to that, there are powerful practical reasons why people are going to do that. Um, Another part of the impact that I'm concerned about is touched on by Mr. Hogopian, who says, well, states can just lower their resource standards and lower their income uh, maintenance standards. Well, what that says is, states, you should serve fewer people. You should serve fewer elderly so that you can 
have the money to serve people who happen to have resources in excess and in, in many cases substantially in excess of the standard resource uh, limits. The Clary case, which is cited in the briefs, is a good example of that kind of potential situation. That was a situation in which the uh, nursing home spouse had something in the neighborhood of a quarter of a million dollars of excess resources. And, but because of the income of the setup of the spouses, it would have taken that income, that, those resources to make up that income, even though that particular spouse, um, as, as I recall, also Th would have had money. Thank you, Ms. Flanagan. The case is submitted.